so you know what the breakdown of the debate will be. Um, 15 minute opening statements, followed by five minute rebuttals, 10 minute cross examination. Uh, that's when, the, that's when the, the real debate takes place, in my opinion. Uh, followed by five minute rebuttals, then 10 more minutes of cross examination. That's 10 minutes for each person asking questions. Five minute closing statements and Q&A for 20 minutes. Now, I will be perfectly honest with you, I just realized that, um, are we gonna have cards? Uh, Okay, so we will have cards in the back. Uh, are they already set up for folks to grab? Okay, make sure you get those cards if you wanna have questions put in. Uh, at some point, someone's gonna have to sneak up and hand those cards to me, uh, and I will find all the easy ones for Oscar, and Gabe, you're in deep trouble. Uh, so, uh, Gabe did want me to mention to you that he is to tonight's victim of Southwest Airlines. Uh, he flew in, uh, and his luggage did not. <laughs> His luggage, well, we don't know where his luggage is, and uh, uh, that's one of the reasons I don't fly anymore, to be perfectly honest with you, because I like my luggage and what's in my luggage, so I'd like to get it to where I'm going. So uh, we will pray for, uh, for Gabe as he tries to sleep tonight, wherever it is he'll be sleeping in a hotel, whether they've found his luggage or not. And maybe, it, are you just going home after this? Maybe it'll get to wherever it, it's supposed to go. So uh, just so you know, he's... I thought maybe Gabe was just trying to sort of go with the apologia look, you know, type thing, and, uh, and no, uh, he just simply doesn't have his uh, luggage. So for those of you who do not know Gabe, I, I, now, I, I'm, I'm, I've got to tell you something. See, if I were to read this normally, I'd simply say, Gabriel Wrench was born in Texas. But since he sent it to me, I have to say, Gabriel Wrench was born in the promised land of Texas. Not sure exactly. Uh, our first theological disagreement of the evening uh, at that point. Um, six states later, he ended up in Moscow, Idaho. Yes, that Moscow, Idaho, where he graduated from the University of Idaho. You actually graduated and kept your faith. That, that's, that's, not, that's not easy to do. He has also attended Greyfriars Hall, the pastoral training program at Christ Church. Gabriel is a media and PR consultant, the co-founder of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, uh, I can uh, testify that uh, he also knows where taco time is in Moscow so that he and I can woof down uh, taco time right before doing cross-politic, which is actually a dangerous thing to do, given how sensitive the microphones are. So I'm not really sure we could, should continue doing that. And he's, of course, one of the hosts of the cross-politic TV show. He also serves as a deacon at his church, King's Cross, uh, which, of course, is closely associated uh, with Christ Church there, but they meet downtown. I've had the opportunity of preaching at both those churches, and serves on various nonprofit boards. His favorite food groups... <laughs> you didn't put taco time in here. I didn't. No. I'm, really, I'm, I'm really crushed. Uh, our barbecue, ice cream, and topping the charts, scotch. <laughs> then there's something here about Balvenie 21 year, if you're asking. I have no idea what that is. I'm a Baptist. So, he lives on a small 10-acre farm with his wife, three children, and a bunch of miscellaneous animals. He thinks he has an RV set up there, but he does not. I just want to remind him of that particular little issue that's just a little thing between uh, the two of us. So uh, Gabe comes to us from, uh, from far away, uh, but let's make him feel welcome here uh, this evening.
Now the hometown boy, Oscar Dunlap, was born, ready for this, and raised in Ypsilanti, Michigan. It's pretty close, right? I know a few people from Michigan. Um, how many times do you have to spell Ypsilanti? All the time. I, yeah, every time. That's a, that's a very strange spelling. He currently attends Whitfield Theological Seminary in pursuit of his MDiv, Master's of Divinity degree. He has been wedded to his bride, Teresa, for nine years. Just letting you know, don't forget the 10th. Make sure it's big. Be, uh, pl start planning now. Just, just letting you know. That was 30 years ago for me. So uh, nine years, his father to four children. He now serves as a deacon at Apologia Church, so I think it's rather interesting that we have uh, a deacon and a deacon uh, doing our discussion this evening on baptism. Teaches in various capacities and leads weekly evangelistic and apologetic community outreaches uh, for uh, the church here at Apologia Church. And so we are glad to have these two gentlemen here. As I said, uh, we're looking at right at two hours on the subject of baptism. Gabe is going to be the one who has the opportunity of uh, setting things up for us. Let me just mention that I think that it's important that we continue to have these conversations. You might say, well, haven't, haven't you debated this before? I have. In fact, the first time I ever debated the subject was right here on this stage in 1995. Um, and so you might say, well, how many times do we do this? Well, um, the fact of the matter is, as long as we cooperate together, and we here at Apologia Church have very close relationships with the folks up in Moscow. We have very close relationships with our Presbyterian uh, brothers. I have spoken at numerous conservative Anglican churches in Australia. We have to have these conversations. We can't just simply uh, put these things under the rug. Uh, each generation needs to think these things through, and sometimes hearing other voices is very helpful. Sometimes you get a, a perspective that you don't have in other, in other contexts. And so I think it's important that we continue to do this, but this evening's debate will be done in the context of the confession of each other as brothers in Christ, and it is our desire that he be honored in all that we do this evening, uh, including the attitudes we have toward one another. So uh, with that, I'm going to offer a word of prayer and then invite Gabe to, uh, to come forward for his uh, opening statement. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather this evening and to consider these important issues from your word. We ask that by your spirit, you would give us insight and understanding. Lord, even as we disagree, we would always come to your word and seek your wisdom and your counsel from your written scriptures. We ask that you would be with us this evening, and as we leave, we would be better prepared to be servants of yours. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There is one thing, Gabe, before you begin. Now, I, I'm concerned about the fact that maybe someone might say, well, you're going to be unfair. And I was concerned about the fact that people might see, because of the cameras, some reaction on my part, especially while Gabe was speaking. And so, if I'm on my microphone, good. I, uh, I said to Gabe, I said, Gabe, I think I might need to wear a mask while, while you're speaking. And he sent something back to me. And so, this is what I'll wear while Gabe is speaking. <laughs> so that... Perfect. It's good? It's good? You good with that? Okay. So, while Gabe's speaking... No. 
uh, no, I won't, but it would hide the emotions fairly well, and uh, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm hoping it doesn't have any indication of what might happen to Gabe by the end of the evening or anything like that. But, uh, so I will try to hide my, uh, my emotions and my thoughts, and I thank you for the opportunity of getting to buy one of these things. I, I appreciate it. <clears throat> Well, thank you, Dr. White, for, for moderating this debate um, between a bunch of peon deacons. <laughs> thank you for that. And, of course, thank you, Oscar, for setting all this up. And I know you put a lot of legwork together. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Glad to be debating you. Thank you. And uh, thank you to the Apologia family. We love you guys. We're, we're glad we're close and friends and we really appreciate y'all's ministry and the abortion ministries and all the hard work that you guys do and the gifts that you guys have that are unique um, to, to y'all that are different from ours. So we really do appreciate you guys. Um, to echo Dr. White um, a little bit, um, and in our fallen world, I think debates are really important. Um, you know, we're finite creatures and and we, we need to debate these things. We need to continually be debating scripture. In fact, I think that's that's a sign of healthy times in the church that we can debate and disagree and you know go out for beer afterwards and have good fellowship that that's really healthy iron sharpens iron uh that kind of um we're, we're finite creatures and we we need that challenge so i'm really grateful uh for oscar really grateful paul gia likes to have these kind of conversations i grew up in in a, a church that really didn't debate. I grew up in, a, in, in Texas, and, you know, the Baptists didn't debate the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians didn't debate the Methodists. I mean, there's no cross-challenging of each other. And, in fact, it was um, largely discouraged debating. I remember even debating my high school friends in, in Dallas and them getting, it being very difficult to do. Even as friends just you know, um, you know, your junior year in high school debating them, and everyone kind of getting a little annoyed with each other. Uh, and, and that was representative of the church just not setting a good example for us. Um, so as, as, as I hope, part of what's going on tonight is that we're sharpening each other's iron, and, and we're encouraging uh, everyone here to dig deeper into God's Word and, and to, be, to be concerned for the truth. Um, you know, me and Oscar, we're pretty set in our, our views here. We're pretty set in our ways. We've we've been studying the issues. We we um you know know what we believe here, and uh, but but even that you can't have pride in, in your own um, uh, stance. You need to be making sure your stance continually lines up with the Word of God. So, um, you know we're we're here. We got we got we're here. We're we're like a family. You know we got our crazy uncles. You know we you kind of you kind of married into the church. You kind of married into a family. You got your crazy uncles and and you want to be able to work through all these issues together, and so um, hopefully that's a, a part of what's going on to, tonight. And, and I think related to this, you know, Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 9 says, you know, we need to be growing in the love, or, excuse me, in the knowledge and love of God. And so we just don't be growing in love, like, you know, maybe the charismatic or evangelical church just always wants to talk about love, love, love. You know, we need to be growing in that knowledge, too. And the more we know about God, the more we're going to be able to love God. And the more we're going to be able to understand how big his grace is in our lives. So, we're, we're Christians, and we believe in the, in the whole word of God. Right? Genesis to Revelations. And, and we don't want to, at any point, have a Bible verse that we're embarrassed of. We don't want to, at any point, have 
um, a book that, that we're wanting to push to the side. Uh, it, we, and then, and then like, like Andy Stanley, we don't want to unhitch half the Bible. You know, we don't want to create, we don't, we, we don't treat the Bible like the Old Testament was this angry God and the New Testament was this gracious God. We don't treat the Old Testament like it's a kind of a different religion. Or kind of, there's a, there's a, a massive chasm between the Old Testament and New Testament. That's not true. We, and, and we don't want to create this, you know, we don't want to be like these modern evangelicals that want to unhitch the Old, Old Testament. And in the end, you know, they kind of end up severing Christ from Christ. Christ was in the Old Testament. Christ was revealed to us in shadows and figures and types and so forth in the Old Testament. And, we, and, and everything was being fulfilled in Christ in his death and resurrection. But if we, if we you know, create this uh, bifurcation in the Old Testament, if we create this separation from the Old Testament and New Testament, well, we're, we're severing the Word of God where God doesn't sever the Word. And so we don't want to um, create this, you know, uh, I wouldn't just say new religion, but, new, but this, this, this distinction that's not present in God's Word. We want to take all of God's Word, we want to receive it, we want to believe it, and we want to apply it how God's Word teaches us to apply it. That's why biblical hermeneutics is so important. You know, we interpret, the most basic biblical hermeneutic is we interpret Scripture with Scripture. So when we, we come to a hard verse, when we come to a difficult verse, well, what we need to do is we need to go find maybe, maybe some Scripture that's better and easier to understand that might, you know, bring light to that difficult text. What we don't do is try to reason to ourselves and try to maybe smooth out that text with our own reasoning. No, we want, to, we want to receive that text. Sharp edges and all, whatever's going on there, we want to receive it as the Word of God. And we want to believe it as the Word of God. And we don't want to apologize for it. And so, um, I, and I know that's, that's not apologia, that's not Oscar, but I think that's something that we need to, you know, I remember when I first moved to Moscow in, in 2002, uh, one of the biggest things that Doug challenged me with was he just said, resolve to have no problem verses in the Bible. Whatever that, whatever that problem verse is for you, the, you know, the, the slavery text, the, the you know, Abraham and, you know, um, uh, lied about Sarah, his wife text, what, you know, what Abraham walked up on the mountain with his son to sacrifice his son. You know, how do we, we want to receive all these difficult texts as the word of God. And we want to believe them because we know what God is doing is good. And we might not be able to have the full mind of God. We not be, might not be able to understand the glory of God and the full mind of God in that way. Uh, but we, we know we need to receive it. We know that God's bigger than us. We know we're finite creatures and we know we need to receive it. So uh, this debate is, lar- is, is really about how we understand the covenant. This debate is, is really about how we stand, understand the old covenant and how we understand the old covenant in relationship to the new covenant. And, 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 and we are the covenant body of Christ. We are, we are, we are all we're Christians, we are believers, we're in covenant with God, so we want to understand that covenant. And as we understand in the, in the New Testament, now we know that we're part of Abraham's uh, covenant. Right? We're part of the sons and daughters of Abraham. You know, we're, we're part of that sand, that, that stars in the sky that God promised Abraham. So we're, we're part of the historic covenant. We aren't just part of this, you know, the New Testament doesn't just present us this like new covenant, like new, totally separate from the old, old covenant. We don't have this, you know, um, 
very distinct, you know, the old covenant ends, the new covenant begins, and there's no relationship between the old and new. That's not what, that's not what the Bible presents. Um, so I want to, I with that in mind, I want to kind of, you know, give you a definition of, of what covenant is. A basic definition of what covenant is, it's, 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 a, it's a promise that's associated with blessings and cursings. That's, that's the definition of a covenant. That's the Bible's operating definition of a covenant. Um, some like to use solemn bond. It's a solemn bond with attendant blessings and cursings. Um, uh, I, I like to use the word promise because it, it tends to connect with our, our ears a little better. Uh, but it's a, it's a promise that comes with blessings and cursings. And those blessings and cursings are conditions, they're, they're, they're conditions placed on that covenant. You know, God, God says, you know, if you obey me, I'll bless you to a thousand generations. If you, if you disobey me, I'll, I'll curse you to third and fourth generation. So every, every you'll, you'll, you'll see in the, in the scriptures that, you know, God made covenant with Adam and Eve, and I'll, I'll briefly hit on that. I'm not going to go through all the covenants, but God made covenant with Noah. God made covenant with Abraham. God made covenant with Isaac. God made covenant with Jacob. God made covenant with Joseph, David, so forth. And every one of those covenants, that, that formula is there. God promises, and then God associates blessings and cursings with that promise. And whether the word covenant is actually stated, like we don't see the word covenant really until Noah in Genesis chapter 6. So Adam and Eve were in covenant with God, but the word covenant wasn't there, but the, the formulation of a covenant was there. God, God promised Adam and Eve. Um, God, God set up the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there's blessings and cursings associated with that tree. And, and so the, the shape of a covenant, the covenant was present there. And of course, each covenant, there's more revelation that comes with each covenant. There's, God's revealing more and more about who he is with each covenant. And that's why we often, you know, refer, use the terminology like covenant renewal or, or old covenant, new covenant, even old covenant, new covenant. It's, it's really talking about covenant renewal. God's renewing covenant. The covenant that God made with Noah, the covenant that God made with Abraham. Well, God's just renewing covenant. He's not making a new covenant up. Uh, and, and you'll see that in Galatians chapter 3. Uh, and so each covenant is more just of a, a renewing of that covenant. And, and it's, a, and it's a, a greater revelation also that comes with that renewing of covenant. We learn more about God and who he is through each, each revealing of the new covenant. And then, of course, in each covenant, God is, God is kind of revealing a little bit about himself and who, what he's going to be doing in the New Testament, what he's going to be doing in Jesus. Um, you see that, you know, Abraham was, was the father of all nations. God promised that. Uh, we see that, that God was going to send a king, a, a, a king, a new king, a, a real king to deliver us. Well, King David was kind of a representation of that covenant, that kingly covenant. And so each covenant kind of has an element of revelation about who God is and what he's going to be doing in the New Testament and through Christ. So the structure of the covenant is, um, when Adam and Eve lived, before they were sinners, before they fell, uh, the covenant had, you know, a promise, had blessing and cursings, right, associated with it, had a sign and a seal, the sign. The sign was the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. That was the sign of, of Adam and Eve's covenant. And then, of course, after the fall, uh, it, you know, sacrifices were added to that covenant, that fallen. The, fall, the covenant now needed um, a sacrifice, now needed a way of dealing with that sin. And, and then lastly, you'll see in a covenant, you'll see like a, a um, a sacrament, a, a covenant mill. So those are kind of the five um, things that you'll find in a covenant, the five uh, uh, markings, uh, you could say, of, of a covenant. Promise, blessing and cursing, sign and seal, uh, sacrifices, and then, you know, a sacrament, a covenant mill. 
And, and you can see that in, in our marriages. Our marriages actually have that. You know, me and my wife, we promise to love each other. We promise to, to sacrifice for, for each other. We promise to, uh, she, she promised to submit. I promise to lead. Uh, so there's a promise there in our marriage. And then you see that there's blessings and cursings associated with that promise. And then you um, have a sign and seal. Well, the, my, my ring is a sign of that covenant. Okay? This, I, everyone knows I'm married because I got this ring right here. And then you have, um, and of course, uh, you can't have a sanctifying marriage without the death and resurrection of Jesus. You have a sacrifice for that marriage. So you can have a good marriage. And then lastly, you have a covenant, you know, a, a sacrament. Um, and, and the sacrament of marriage is, is, is sex. It, it's, it's a mill. There's a mill there. Uh, and so you see how God, you know, covenant, God just, you know, laid embedded covenant throughout our, our creation. It's just, it's just part of who we are. It's just part of what he created. It's just part of gravity. And then, of course, there's, there's different kinds of covenants. There's the, the looser version of a covenant, you know, like a contract between businesses or a contract between an employee and employer. Um, but they don't, they don't kind of follow some of the same pattern of, 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 the, of the covenant that God made between man and God. You don't have, uh, you know, this, this sign and seal. You don't have a sacrifice. You don't have, a, you know, but, but those those contracts, those other covenants that you see kind of mimic, kind of resemble a little bit of what God had embedded in his relationship between God and man. And because that chasm, because when Adam and Eve fell, that chasm was so great, God began to mend that relationship through covenant first. So covenant is kind of the, the, the beginning of restoring the, the relationship, the, the sever that, God, that man had with God. And of course, in that covenant, God promised full restoration through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, uh, real quick, I just want to run through, um, we're, we're just going to run through Abraham's covenant. I, I'm not going to go through each covenant. There's, um, I, I don't have time for that. But Abraham's covenant is kind of an easy covenant that I think we all recognize. So, uh, in uh, Abraham, in Genesis, of course, you'll find God began to make covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, but I think the, the clearest, and then he repeats it in Genesis chapter 22, but the clearest articulation of the covenant that God made with, with uh, Abraham was in Genesis chapter 17, 1 through 14. I'm not going to read through it all for time's sake, but you can um, uh, check it out yourself, but I'm going to try to hit some of the highlights here, okay? So kind of chapter 1 through, uh, excuse me, chapter 17, 1 through 14. Abraham was 99 years old. God came to Abraham, and, and, and here's God speaking to, to, to Abraham, and he's saying, I will make a, verse 2, I will make a covenant between me and you. Okay? I'll make a covenant. No longer shall your name be called Abram. It'll be called Abraham. And then we go into verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations. I want to make one more point here about what a covenant, what included in the covenant. A covenant is include, includes generations in that covenant. Every covenant, God included generations in that covenant. That'd be another identifying factor of, of, of a covenant that God made between God and man. Uh, forever, an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Now go to verse 10. And this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. So that's, that's the sign of that covenant. That's the sign of that covenant. So you already have, you have the the, uh, the, the promise is, is being made here. Um, I will multiply you. In verse 2, you have that promise. In verse 2, 
I will multiply you exceedingly. You have the, the, the promise of that covenant, and it will be an everlasting covenant in verse 7. And then you have the sign of that covenant. Every male child shall be circumcised. You have that sign coming. And then verse 13, is kind of the, the second half of verse 13 says, my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. That's the, the sign of circumcision is, is, is in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And then you have, uh, it goes on in verse 14, and the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. You have the blessings and you have the cursings. <clears throat> if, if you do this, you will be blessed to a thousand generations. If you don't do this, you'll be cursed to a third and fourth generation. So that's kind of the, the structure. And of course, we know uh, later on, I'm not going to go through it here, but, but later on, God cut that covenant. So the, the Hebrew word uh, uh, for covenant in the Old Testament is to cut. cut. God cut that covenant. And God cut that covenant with Abraham when he splayed the birds and, and laid them down, and God walked through uh, those birds. God cut through those birds. So we have the blood, we have the sacrifice of the covenant there. So that kind of structure is repeatable. Whenever, you, whenever God's making covenant or renewing covenant, you'll see a similar structure like that in scriptures. And of course, in the New Testament, we see all those, all those factors present there. God made a promise to Christ. God had blessings and cursings there. Christ took on the ultimate curse, was hung on a tree. Christ was that ultimate sacrifice. Um, Christ was uh, the fulfillment of the sacrifice and the ultimate sacrifice. And and I'm arguing here that baptism was that sign and seal of that new covenant. Time. And then lastly, um, you have a covenant meal in the Lord's Supper. So, so all those, uh, how much? Oh, we're about a minute over. Okay, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> well, you got, you got to my, my, uh, my point. That was just, uh, let me just finish two seconds, 30 seconds here. Um, so you'll see that all those structures and the, the, all, that, all that structure that you find in the Old Testament, the same structure that you find in the New Testament, and which is why I'll be arguing for today that baptism is the sign and seal of the new covenant. So, thank you. It goes fast when it's your turn. Yeah. <laughs> and slow when the other guy's up there. I should have turned around and asked how much time I was That's all right. I can't see the clock. Yeah, I understand. All right, 15 minutes. Brother Oscar. I'm not that tall. <laughs> so, forgive me because my iPad isn't working and so I have to work off my phone. All right. <clears throat> so, first off, I would like to thank my brother Gabe again for taking this debate. I uh, thank Redeemer for, for hosting it. Uh, for all you people in attendance uh, who found it a valuable enough conversation to come in here and to hopefully learn. I'm honored before God to be here and to partake in this debate concerning a very important and yet secondary issue. Most of my conversations about scripture are with unbelievers. A lot of times on the street are these people that I'm debating with. So it's, uh, it's nice to be speaking to a fellow brother in Christ. I would like to begin my opening with a quote actually from Pastor Doug. Um, my brother here, his pastor, um, a man that's been uh, of great benefit to me in my Christian walk, and uh, in many areas I've learned a lot, a great deal about. He says in a video titled Infant Baptism, quote, when we come to debates themselves, we should always remember that they can only be settled through appeals to Scripture. As the Westminster Confession puts it, Scripture is, quote, supreme judge by which all controversies of religion ought to 
and need to be resolved through appeal to the word. I cannot possibly agree more with this statement. And so from the gate, we recognize our starting point and our ending point is scripture. Not history, not arguments from silence, not emotionalism, but scripture. With Luther, we can say, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Therefore, to the audience, I caution, pay very close attention to the means by which our arguments are made. Which of us is appealing to the clear teaching of scripture and which of us is not? Because the reality is we both can't be right on this issue. This debate is rooted in our different views of covenant theology, as many as you, I'm sure, know. The way in which the ordinance is administered is simply the outworking of previous presuppositional starting points concerning the terms of the new covenant. To put it simply, my brother will argue uh, with Pato Baptist covenant theology, he would argue uh, that the covenant of grace has been in effect since the time of Adam until the time of Christ. And the only fundamental difference we have is the different uh, administrations or mediations. Although scripture seems to emphasize the newness of the new covenant repeatedly, incessantly almost, we have uh, a new covenant, a better covenant administered by better uh, administered by a better mediator, inaugurated by a better sacrifice, ushered in by a better ministry, predicated upon better promises. Its, its members possess a better hope, and I would argue, therefore, they are given objectively a better sign. For the superior covenant, accomplished by the perfect work of Christ and enacted by the shedding of his innocent blood, inevitably necessitates a superior sign. All that said, the Paedobaptists would confine the newness of the new covenant to mean something other than it actually being new. And therefore, I'd say conflate the practice of the new covenant sign given to the church with that of the old covenant sign given to ancient Israel. Some, uh, I think, some of these hermeneutical practices, I think in other circumstances, we would scoff at. Um, but in this situation, it seems that this position is seen to be biblically grounded. And because there is reference to scripture, of course, and there is a high view of scripture even in their position, but I think the way that the conclusions are come to um, is not the most thorough when it comes to hermeneutics. And for this reason, we have gathered today to put that claim to the test. Is the practice of paedobaptism biblical? Like a good Reformed Baptist, I would say, nay. And the reason why is very simple. I'm sure many of you have heard the quote, even if you don't know where it came from, but you've heard the quote from uh, an old minister, uh, an old minister from England named uh, Thomas Campbell. Where the scripture speaks, we speak. Where the scripture is silent, we are silent. This is essentially a summation of the regulative principle that we get from Calvin, right? We, 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 we are we are confined in our doctrine and practice to that which scripture directly prescribes to us, right? We go no further. The funny thing is both of these guys are pedo-baptists, so that's pretty funny. <laughs> Anyhow, I ask if, if we as Reformed Christians apply this principle to baptism and commit to going no further than which scripture prescribes, it seems to me that this issue is pretty simple. It seems to me pretty simple. We know the question again, is pedo-baptism biblical? Let me tell you what is not the question. If infants were included in the old covenant, isn't it only proper that God would include them in the new covenant? That's not the question, right? At best, that's speculation derived from scripture, not interpretation. We've already determined that the argument, whatever argument we make must be rooted and grounded in biblical interpretation. 
Because, why, why, why are we saying that? It's because we recognize that God's word is sufficient. It's sufficient to fully, ser- fully furnish the man of God in all good works. And if baptism, if infant baptism is true, it is indeed a good work. And surely, if it's true, I beseech my brother, bind my conscience by the word. Before I go any further, let me first, let me be the first to admit that the argumentation typically spouted by Baptist, my Baptist brother, I think to be very compelling, but not in the right way. I think it to be emotionally compelling. I mean, who, which of us wouldn't want our children to automatically partake in the covenant of grace? I think we all would. Spurgeon says this, if I thought it wrong to be a Baptist, I should give it up and become what I believe to be right. If we could hold, if we could find infant baptism in the word of God, we should adopt it. It would help us out of a great difficulty, for it would take away from us the reproach which is attached to us, that we are odd and do not as other people do. But we have looked well through the Bible and cannot find it, and do not believe that, there, that it is there. Nor do we believe that others can find infant baptism in the scriptures unless themselves they first put it there. I believe the argumentation in large part, as I said, to be emotional, and why I find no issue with emotional argumentation, um, it must be derived from Scripture. When we are at the abortion mill and we're, and we're, we're approaching a woman and we're trying to uh, uh, use the Scripture to appeal to her emotions, we're doing so from the reality that God's Word explicitly tells us that that child is an image bearer of God. See, our emotional argumentation is still rooted in what Scripture clearly teaches. So before moving on, what I also say while I totally disagree with pedo-baptism, I'm no friendlier to holding off baptism um, until we, 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 we reach a standard that Scripture doesn't prescribe to us. Right? The formula is to repent, believe, and be baptized. That's what we get from Scripture. That's what we ought to be faithful to. We as, as, as cradle-baptists ought not to hold our children to a, a different standard of their profession than we do someone who walked into our church. Right? Are, we, are we holding off baptism until our children are 12 because we want to make sure that they understand? We baptize upon profession of faith, a credible profession of faith. So I can understand where they come back at us and say, well, you're being inconsistent with what you say you believe. Let me also say, I decided not to spend the short time that I have in this opening to address the method of baptism, but rather its substance. This is because no matter the form, regardless of what the form is, if the substance is not proper, if the substance is not what we derive from Scripture, then no matter the form, it's incorrect. It's inappropriate. And so I'll take this time to address that substance. So when it comes to the issue at hand, I think there's three fundamental questions we must answer, I believe, to arrive at the proper conclusion. What is the new covenant? By what means do its members partake in it? And what is the sign of that covenant? Answering these three questions from Scripture will result in the biblical definition of the new covenant, its requirement for membership, and therefore can find that the said sign uh, be restricted alone to its members. So what is the new covenant? He, He said right, and I believe it starts as a promise. Jeremiah 31, which is also quoted in Hebrews 8, is one of the very best definitions that we have of the new covenant from Scripture. Now, I won't read the whole thing, but some defining points that can be taken from it. The covenant is called new and therefore differentiated from his predecessors. Furthermore, it would be called it would be a covenant God made with his fathers with I'm sorry, it would be a covenant that God made with the fathers 
not like with the fathers who broke it in unfaithfulness. The law and the prior covenant had been externally observed by the covenant people, would now be written on the hearts and minds of these new covenant people and observed internally. God vows to be their covenant God in a way different than that of Israel. And from the least to the greatest, all who partake in this new covenant will bear a special revelational knowledge of God unlike that of Israel. Right, all throughout Old Testament Israel, we see remnant, remnant, remnant. There's always a remnant. There's that 7,000 that God speaks to uh, when he's when, when speaking to Elijah, there's always a remnant. We don't have that remnant, remnant in the new covenant. And so you see that all that partake in the new covenant, um, truly partake in it, are not members just uh, uh, by pretense, but partake in the substance of that covenant. Furthermore, the next chapter, Jeremiah 32, also speaks of a future covenant that God will make with his people, in which God promises there would be one heart among the people, Right In one way, in order that they may fear God forever, it is said to be an everlasting covenant, which implies its unconditional nature. Lastly, Ezekiel 36, we have another future promise that God makes, in which he again promises a new heart for his people and promises to put his very spirit within them, to the end that this people might be faithful where Israel as a people were not. Now, all these texts are given in the Old Testament as promises of what is to come. In summary, we have the text seemingly revealing to us that the promised covenant would be everlasting, unconditional, exclusively made up of those it describes, signified by a new heart in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and efficacious to accomplish obedience to God by its partakers. With all this, while all this is extremely informative and necessary for a foundation to be laid, right, for us to answer the question as to what the new covenant is, it is a promise of what is to come and not the thing itself. For that, we must go to the new covenant scriptures, if we want to understand what the new covenant is, if we want to understand what the sign is, we must allow the scripture to explain it to us from the scriptures that God gave us with this covenant. The New Testament fulfillment of the, of the I'm sorry, the, the fulfillment of the new covenant in the New Testament. In Matthew 26 and 28, our Lord says, this is my blood of the covenant and which is poured out for the many, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is to say the shedding of his blood is that which codified, inaugurated, instituted the new covenant. His blood was the means by which God covenanted, which literally means, as Gabe said, to cut and set apart this people that he had elected in grace. This text not only gives us the means by which the covenant, uh, the means by which the covenant is made, but the result of the covenant, which is the forgiveness of sins. John 19 and 28. Uh, through 30, tells us Christ, knowing all things pertaining to the accomplishment of redemption of his people to be complete, he received the sour wand and proclaimed his work finished. The substance of the promise had been fulfilled. The means by which God promised to save his people had been prepared. Now, the question is, how does one partake in that covenant? Well, the scripture speaks clearly as to this. Scripture teaches it explicitly in a myriad of places that it is by faith that one partakes in, the, in that covenant and no other way. John 1 and 14, John 1 uh, and 12 through 14. But as many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is not by our bloodline or our household or our will even that we become children of God. It is by receiving Christ alone that one is made co-heir with him. And what does it mean to receive Christ? 
Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We receive membership. We enter into covenant with God through faith. And I say, if not by faith, then by what means? By what means do we have a real tangible union with Christ, if it not by faith? And so, what is the sign of that covenant? That covenant that we only have interest to by faith, what is that sign? We arrive at that sign. And I argue the covenant promised by God, accomplished by the mediation of Christ, and applied by grace through faith is given, and it's, and it's reserved to those who profess the reality of their justification by faith in Christ. That said, if paedo-baptism is true, the sign given more closely corresponds to the Old Testament circumcision and is given apart from faith, apart from a profession. Well, what does Scripture say? Galatians 3 and 26, for Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put Christ on. Again, in, in Romans 6, and tw- 6, 2 through 3, do you, know that all, do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in the newness of life. So I ask you. Does the baptized infant identify with the reality of what Scripture defines baptism as? A a death, a burial, a resurrection with Christ by faith. And in doing so, we have union with him and are made co-heirs with him eternally. I say it does not. And I say you can find no other Scripture that gives you a different definition of what baptism is. And so you have an argument from silent. And I say for those arguments, we rather go to the clear teaching of Scripture to be informed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now we will have uh, five minutes of rebuttal and clarification for each speaker. And we'll be going Gabe, Oscar, Gabe, Oscar in that order uh, all evening. So it'll be pretty straightforward and pretty easy. Um, I should have asked if you want any time indication. Yeah, just like one minute. One minute? Okay. Sorry, All right, one minute. Up, you got it. You got it. Thanks. Don't start the clock yet. Don't start the clock yet. Don't start the clock yet. Okay, you can start it now. No. <laughs> okay. Um, so Oscar's already doing it. Oscar already has to sever the Old Testament, the Old Covenant from the New Covenant. He has to pretend that the New Covenant is, is something totally new. Something that has no grounds in the old covenant with Abraham, and um, and and and, the, and in addition to this, you have to pretend that the old covenant was just a covenant of works, just a covenant of you do this, I do that, okay? But but that's not how God talks about it, okay? Faith was the whole point of the old covenant, okay? Deuteronomy chapter um, uh, uh, ten verse twelve. What does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve him, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. And then he goes on to verse 16. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. And of course, the formulation of Abraham's covenant in chapter 17, um, it it was accounted Abraham to righteousness because he believed first. He believed first. Okay, Romans chapter uh, um, four verse six says 
that Abraham believed first and then was circumcised. Okay? But, but that didn't... I'm trying to find the verse while I'm talking. But, but that didn't prohibit Abraham from circumcising his children. So if you go to Romans chapter uh, 4, verse 6 real quick, it's, it's believer circumcision. Verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. A seal of righteousness of faith. He received the sign before he, he, he excuse me, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of who? All. And then he proceeded to be circumcised, and then he proceeded to have his generations circumcised. So faith was always the point in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, secondly, um, the reason why the Old Covenant matters is because the Old Covenant is the basis for the New Covenant. Okay, go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Okay, verse 7. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Same covenant. Same covenant. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a distinct covenant. We can't, we can't make up things in the New, in the New Testament. We have, we have to synthesize things in the Old Covenant and New Covenant. Jesus didn't come to just, you know, poof, New Covenant. No, he's the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. So the Old, the old Covenant matters in this whole debate. It goes on verse 8. Um, and, and this is a beautiful verse, verse 8. And the Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the nations by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, and you all the nations shall be blessed. What a beautiful verse. The gospel was preached in the Old Testament. And in that, in that line, and you all the nations shall be blessed. That's the gospel. Paul says that's the gospel. Is that your gospel? And then it goes on in verse uh, um, uh, 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto the seeds as many, but as of one. And to your seed who is Christ. And this I say, that the law which is 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. That's Abraham's covenant. It was confirmed by God in Christ. Abraham's covenant was. So why would we all of a sudden want to just redefine what the new covenant means? You know, Oscar wants to um, One minute. hold to this. Thank you. Oscar, Oscar wants to hold to kind of the, the regulative principle. Okay? If you can't find it in scriptures, then, then, then we shouldn't believe it. We shouldn't follow it. Well, do women in this church take communion? Show me a place in, in the Bible, in the New Testament, where women take communion. Show it to me. Do you guys have a guitar in worship? Do we have speakers, microphones in worship? Show me a place in the, old, in, the, in the Bible where those are regulated, where those are clearly defined, clearly articulated. And lastly, um, uh, the covenant was a structure for family. Okay, and even the Baptists can't say that the, cover, that, that the covenant or that baptism is for all believers because when you baptize people, you don't know if they're truly saved. In fact, a lot of people have walked away from that. So the covenant, the objective beauty of the covenant, which I hopefully I'll get into more later, is a great way of articulating this issue. So thank you. Thank you, Gabe. Oscar, you have your five minutes. 
So just to respond to, to Gabe here, I do not entirely detach the old covenant from the, from the new. I recognize that there is discontinuity as well as continuity between the covenants. The important thing is that we allow Scripture to define what that discontinuity and continuity is. Um, scripture, the new covenant scriptures are going to define for us what the new covenant is. Most of what you hear from my brother here pertaining to the sign of baptism is references to the old covenant, old covenant, old covenant. Why would we not allow the scripture that God provided along with the new covenant sign, which is the new covenant scriptures, to define exactly what that means? to define the parameters of the sign and when the sign is to be administered, when it is a proper time to partake in the sign. That is my argument, is that God is allowed to define what, when the sign is to be administered and what the sign actually means. The two scriptures that I referenced in my opening, Romans 6, uh, 2 and 3, uh, as well as Galatians 3 and 26, they gives us a clear definition as to what a, a, a proper baptism rightly administered, should signify. And that is regeneration. Now, does that mean it always is regeneration in the individual that partakes in baptism? No, and and we're not claiming that. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration. But what we are claiming is that that is what the sign is supposed to point to, right? So when you have an infant being baptized who cannot even profess to believe in the substance of that sign, again, I say, that is biblically inappropriate. Furthermore, he mentioned, do we allow women to take communion? And this is an interesting one because though we don't see women taking communion in scripture, we see all of the things necessary to recognize that women have membership in the covenant, right? We see women being baptized. We see uh, 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 scripture in, in Uh, Galatians 3 said there's no more male and female. There's all one in Christ. We have many texts referring to the reality of women's partaking in the covenant. We don't have that for infants. Now, I know he would disagree with that, but when we're looking to the new new covenant, the New Testament, the scriptures, to define for us what the requirement is for new covenant membership, I'm saying that is lacking because the scripture is clear to say that it is faith. Again, I ask, if not by faith, then by what means do we have union with Christ? If not by faith, then what is Christ actually mediating to us? Christ is said to be full of grace and truth, and therefore all those who partake in him partake in the fullness of grace and truth. Well, Gabe would say that's not the case. He would say there were some that partake in the covenant or are under the federal headship of Christ but are not partaking in the fullness of grace and truth, are not secure in their salvation. We would deny that. I would deny that and say that all those who are in Christ are, are, are secure in their salvation. And I don't mean the invisible church. I mean, I don't mean the visible church, I'm sorry. I mean the invisible church, those who God has elected from all eternity. Now, regarding the Abrahamic covenant, there's a, there's a whole lot there to get into. But, but as I said before, when we're speaking of this issue, we must start with the new covenant scripture. It's not to say that we can never reference back to the old covenant, but, but the scripture must be the defining point for us uh, that God has given us to understand what the sign is.
Thank you. All right. Now we're going to stay at the tables, I would assume, for this part, um, and have our 10 minutes cross-examination. Now, I realize cross-examination very frequently is what gets people thinking. And so what I would like to do is give you this time uh, to be listening, to be formulating your questions. Uh, but if you have questions that you want to write down the cards and get submitted, this will be the time to be doing that so that I have enough time to look through the questions and, and get them sorted by the end of the debate. So I'm not sure who's going to be picking up the, uh, the questions uh, or how exactly how they're going to be given to me. Someone will need to figure that out uh, back there. Um, maybe some are from San Diego or something like that. Uh, and uh, so uh, if you guys could be working on that so that I can get the uh, questions after this next period where we'll have 10 minutes. Uh, now my understanding is that's 10 minutes for each one of you. Is that correct? correct. Okay. That's what I understand. Uh, and you'll be going, you'll be, Gabe will be asking the questions first. This is a free form cross-examination. You can only do this if you can trust both sides to behave, okay? Because it can be abused. People can talk longer than they should. Other people can try to cut people off. Hopefully that's not gonna be an issue this evening. Um, so no, no President Trump. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> or just going wrong. Uh, that's probably not, wrong. The best. <laughs> that's not the best way to do it either. Uh, but uh, Gabe will have control of the floor for the first 10 minutes, then Oscar for the second 10 minutes. So let's begin our cross-examination. Go ahead, Gabe. Um, Oscar, do you, do you agree with my articulation of kind of the definition of covenant? Did you have any quibbles there? So I said, just a reminder, I said a covenant is basically a, a promise with attendant blessings and cursings with it, associated with it. No, I don't have a problem with that. So how would you define covenant? No, I said I don't have a problem with that. Okay, okay. Um, and, and then you said in your notes that, um, in, your, in your last response here, um, that when speaking of the, the new covenant, we must start with the New Testament. Is that correct? Um, but, but Galatians starts with the old covenant. So that, um, how to explain to me, maybe synthesize those things for me. With, if Paul starts with the old covenant, and you say we only need to be starting, we, when we define, when we talk of the new covenant, we need to start with the New Testament. How does that make sense with what Paul's doing in Galatians chapter 3? Sure. Uh, so to clarify what I mean, I'm saying when we are defining the parameters of the covenant. So in the, in the old covenant, we have a promise of what is to come. In the new covenant, we have the fulfillment of that thing. Right? Amen. So in order to understand the parameters of that covenant in detail, we don't go to the shadow. We mm -hmm. go to the substance. Mm -hmm. And so the new covenant is the substance of the promise that was given in the old, the old covenant. Now, but isn't that what Paul's doing? I mean, he's using the shadow to talk about the real, the covenant. Uh, at no point is Paul saying that the shadow doesn't matter anymore. Sure. And he's basing his argument, his, his, in fact, Galatians chapter 3 is the middle of Galatians, hinging his whole argument against the Galatians on, on that. Yeah, yeah, I, and I wouldn't say, I, I wouldn't say that, um, even when, when he's starting with the, with the old covenant, I mean, I mean, Everything that's laid out is it's it's beginning with Christ. It's the, the, the new covenant scriptures are starting with the reality of Christ. Mm -hmm. Right. And then is, is he pointing back to, to reference what it means, what Christ accomplished? Sure. But the reality is Christ died and resurrected and, and they all know that. 
And so that's the starting okay. point. So are, are, are you, um, how would you, I guess maybe this is a definitional um, thing here too, um, how would you define fulfillment? Are you saying fulfillment, does it, does it start to negate the old covenant? Or what, how, what's, the, what's fulfillment in relationship to the old covenant? No, I don't believe it negates it. It's, it's a, a, a promise is given and it's fulfilled in the new covenant. That which was promised comes to pass. Yeah. And, and Jesus was the, that promise, right? Sure. Um, so how, how in the... Um, all right, so there's three debates with the Jews in the New Testament, right? There's, there's the debate in the Galatians. They were wanting to you know, do, the old, do the old ways. There's the, the debate in Hebrews where they're wanting to do the old sacrifices. And then there's the debate in Acts chapter 15 where the Jews were like, hey, we need, Gentiles need to get circumcised, right? Three debates. How come there was never a debate on infant baptism? How come there was never a debate on the Jews saying that, oh my goodness, my kids aren't allowed to be in covenant with God anymore? Well, th- this is something... I mean, don't you, don't you think that would be a big issue? Sure. You know? th- this is something I think is interesting because oftentimes when I hear um, Presbyterians or Pedobaptists referring to Baptists, th- they seem to think that we have this strange relationship with our children where we don't consider them to be Christians or we don't pray with them or things of that nature. Um, and, and I would say that's, that's not true. And I, would, and I would speak to the reality of, of the New Testament Scriptures and what it's showing us in the same way. God has given a covenant. It's not like these, these children no longer belong to the people group, right? But, 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 but members, and, and also not, not children. We're not saying that either. But, but infants who are not able to profess faith in the substance of the covenant, right? We're saying those, you, you can't give them the sign or recognize them as members apart from that which is, apart from that which actually institutes the covenant. So the covenant is instituted by the shed blood of Christ, and so how can someone partake in the covenant if they don't even believe that? The covenant is instituted by the shed blood of Christ. What do you mean by that? Like, what do you mean by instituted? I mean, I mean the covenant, that is when the covenant is cut. Mm-hmm. I'm saying the, 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 the sacrifice of Christ is what makes the promise a reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but again, so how come the Jews weren't thrown down about, I mean, they're throwing down about circumcision. I would throw down way more about all of a sudden, you know, for thousands of years, babies were circumcised and allowed into the covenant, people of God, and then all of a sudden Christ comes, and then babies aren't allowed to be in covenant with God anymore? That, that to me, there'd be a whole book of the Bible on that if that was the case. Sure. I understand it's, a, it's an argument from silence, but I, I don't find it, I don't find it, I guess, appealing enough to, to, uh, to be the standard of our practice. Scripture gives us something clear as to when the sign is to be administered. Um, that doesn't fall under, that, that doesn't fall under uh, how Scripture defines it for us. And so whatever troubles that we get from that, I say we take them because Scripture doesn't give us any other path, at least in the New Testament, to understand that. Um, it's not an argument of science, silence because there are examples in the Old Testament where babies were baptized. So when Israel walked through the Red Sea, all were baptized in it. And so it's, it's consistent. It's a consistent question and consistent with the scriptures and consistent with, I think, how the Jews would be thinking when Jesus died and rose and instituted the new covenant. And they would, they would be like, what, what do you mean? Babies were baptized in the Old Testament. I mean, you know, Paul says that, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say if that, was, if that was so normative, I would think we would have one example of it explicitly in scripture as an example 
whether in in something being taught didactically or I just, I just gave an example in the Red Sea. No, I'm, I mean in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant? In the New Testament. In the New Testament. Um, yeah, but you can't even consistently apply that because there's no example of women taking the Lord's Supper in the, New, in the New Covenant. So you have to argue from silence to be able to make that argument. Now, I agree with you. I think women should take the Lord's Supper. I'm not arguing against that. Um, but that's because I'm, I'm arguing from, from principle. I'm arguing from um, the, the historic way God dealt with his people. And I'm not just making something up in the New Testament all of a sudden and saying, yeah, this babies, you know, babies are no longer re, um, allowed to be in, in covenant people of God. They're, they're now cut off until they, they profess according to some humanistic, human definition of what profession looks like. Mm. Uh, another thing I would say is when it comes to, I, I, I'm, not, I would, I'm not making the argument that the children are cut off. See, I, baptism is a sign of a greater reality. So let's say that there's a, a, a child and their parents hold off baptism for a certain amount of time because they're paranoid that they might not give a credible profession of faith. That does not somehow negate their salvation. If God has granted them repentance and faith, holding off baptism is not going to cease that. So any of those children that you're speaking of that, that actually had interest in the covenant, baptism is not going to hinder that or, or to give life to that reality. That is true no matter what. But, but again, what we have as the clear and normative practice in the New Testament is what it is. And I say we ought to hold to that. So, I mean, what would you... Um, how much time left, Dr. White? Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Two minutes. Okay, thank you. Um, what would be the status of some Jewish infant in 80, you know, 34 after Christ died and rose again? So, in 80, 30... That Jewish infant was in the covenant of God, people of God. And then when Christ rose again, AD 33, AD 34, um, would that, what would be the status of that Jewish baby? Well, uh, the, the old covenant doesn't assure anything for you anyway. So I don't think it necessarily changed regarding your perception of the new covenant. If the new covenant does not secure salvation for its members, then I don't think there is really a difference. Because there is no more security in your understanding of the new covenant and the old covenant as far as salvation goes. So new covenant secures salvation. So nobody in the old covenant was saved? No, no, no. I'm saying participation in the new covenant secures it. That's not to say that people in the old covenant did not partake in it. But the mm -hmm. covenant, the old covenant, the, the, the Sinaitic covenant, that covenant did not secure anything for anyone. I'm saying the, the, the covenant that's given to Abraham where he is circumcised after the profession of faith is different than what Israel has when they're, when they're circumcised on the eighth day. Mm -hmm. I, I think those, those are two different realities. Okay. Thank you, Dr. White. All right. So now we move over 10 minutes to Oscar. All right. Get your questions written down. All right. All right. I've asked this question a couple times in, the, in, my, in my opening and rebuttal. If not by faith, in what meaningful sense do baptized infants partake in the covenant and have union with Christ? Well, as, as demonstrated, um, the, of course, the covenant is the context of, of, of where faith happens and is nurtured. God's normal way of salvation is through covenant. And, that, and, and so in, in the Old Testament, you saw Abraham, I already, already read it in, 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 uh, in Romans chapter 4, you saw Abraham believe God first and then was circumcised. And God did that for a purpose to be able to 
you know, include all the Gentiles in it. And, and then God had Abraham uh, circumcise all his, um, you know, household, his whole household, servants and everything. Uh, and then in the, in the New Testament, you have um, a very clear articulation of Paul connecting circumcision to baptism. So in, in Colossians chapter um, 2, verses 11 and 12, it says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So you have very clear articulation that there's a baton passing through the burial, through the death and burial of Christ between circumcision as the old covenant sign and baptism as the new covenant sign. And so... Um, and you believe that circumcision made without hands to be the physical circumcision? I believe the physical circumcision pointed to the circumcision without hands. But circumcision without hands doesn't all of a sudden do away with the physical circumcision. It's just showing you the, the true reality of what circumcision is pointing to in the first so, place. So did circumcision... That physical circumcision always point in everybody to the circumcision without hands? Yeah, that's, that's what a sign is. A sign is lesser than what it's actually pointing to. And so the sign of baptism, you don't believe that baptism saves when someone's just dumped with water. You don't believe salvation is automatically happening in that moment. So, but baptism is pointing to salvation. It's pointing to the greater working of the reality of what's going on. Sure. So that's why baptism is a sign. Sure. So uh, I guess my next question is, if... Faith is not a requirement for covenant membership. Would you say that Roman Catholic children also are part of the covenant community? Faith, faith is a requirement of covenant membership through the parents. That's okay. always been. That's always been. So no, no Roman Catholic? Um, well, we don't know if the baby's saved or not, but we do know that the baby's part of the people of God. So this is, this is the, the objective reality of the covenant. There's objective nature to the covenant. Mm-hmm. And that objective nature of the covenant means that we can identify everybody in this room is a Christian. You know, you're baptized, you go to church at Apologia or, or whatever church you go to, and we say you're part of the objective, you're part of the um, covenant people of God. Now, do we know that they're, that they're genuinely saved? We have this, you have this, that, that question gets at, that you have, the Baptists have the, have the same problem that Presbyterians have. We don't know who's genuinely saved, but we do know who's born into the people of God. When, when, I, when my kids are born into my family, I don't all of a sudden say, well, you've got to prove yourself to be a wrench someday. I hope you do. Or... Um, someone becomes, uh, you know, my kids are born and they become, they're automatically citizens of the United States. We don't say, oh, we're gonna, you're going to take a test in 18 years and then we're going to confirm that you're a citizen of the United States. Sure, sure, in sure. the same way that as part of the covenant people of God, when children are born to believing households, they're part of the covenant people of God. Now, um, well, I'll stop there because yeah, I don't yeah, want I don't, I don't to run. If, so, next question. If the covenant does not ensure the salvation of all its members, what does it do and how is it better than the old? Um, I'm having just a little bit of problem hearing you. It's, 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 um, it's my ears, not you. Okay. Could you repeat no. that? Yeah, I said... It's my ears, too. Okay. If the covenant does not ensure salvation for all of its members, what does it do, and how is it better than the old? Um, it's better than the old one. So, in the Old Testament, um, people were saved based on the future death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's like a paycheck. And then in the New Covenant, in the New Testament... People were saved on the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that Old Testament check was cashed. So it's better because it happened. It happened, right. Okay. Does paedobaptism bring the unregenerate infant under the federal headship of Christ? Under the uh, fe- federal headship of Christ? Federal headship? Does paedo- yeah. paedobaptism? Um, it, it brings uh, believers, I'd, I'd articulate it this way, 
it, it brings the, the infant into a recognizable covenant with God. Is the, objective covenant. So in the same way, like John chapter you know, 15 or, or um, Romans chapter 11, you see that there's people, I'm the vine, you are the branches, and there's people being severed off the branches, and there's people being engrafted into the branches. That's, that's a covenant analogy. It's not people losing salvation. It's a covenant analogy of people coming in and out of the covenant based on faith obedience. So, so you would say all people are born under the federal headship of Adam, but baptism can bring an unregenerate infant under the federal headship of Christ. Well, we don't know if that, again, we don't know the heart of that baby, but we do know babies can be saved. Psalm 139, we have examples in the scriptures where babies were saved. Um, we don't know the, the, the heart condition of that ch- baby, but we do know the family status of that baby. We do know the covenant status of that baby, just like we knew in the Old Testament. Abraham's kids were part of the objective covenant people of God. And of course, we have examples in the Old Testament where Eli's sons were obviously not Christians, but they were at one point, they were part of the covenant people of God. And um, you have a number of examples like that in the, in, sure. in the Old Testament. So in, uh, in John 6, Christ says, all that the Father draws, draws uh, will come unto me. Being that you believe baptized infants have been covenantly brought to Christ in their baptism, would you then say that this applies to them? The scripture that, that God is drawing people coming to Christ, would you say that applies to baptized infants? That's the whole point of the covenant. So that was the point of covenant that God made with Adam and Eve. The covenant was the beginning status, the beginning relationship that God made with his people before even Christ had come. So that, that, the, the covenant is just a gracious beginning of a relationship. Got you. So, so when Christ says that uh, he will not fail to raise all them up on the last day, do you think that means all Christian, all, in, all infants baptized with Christian parents are saved? Um, I would, I mean, it, my, my heartstrings would like to say yes, but I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know which baby saved or not, but I would like to believe that God's blessing his people to a thousand generations and that those, um, you know, let's say a baby dies in the mother's womb, um, a Christian parent's womb, I would like to believe that that baby's going to heaven, um, that, that God genuinely saved that baby there. Um, gotcha. But that's, you know, so, probably more of a sentimental desire than anything. Got you. So, but, so but I'm trying to believe in the covenant promises of God sure, sure, is what sure. I'm trying to do. So, so, the, so their salvation would be predicated upon status and not by personal faith. That's what you're saying. Um, uh, salvation would be predicated on God's promises. So God promised to bless Christian families to a thousand generations. So it's, it's, it's predicated on God's promise, not on my works, um, not on anything special I'm doing. It's predicated on God's promise. Sure. Sure. And uh, Romans 6, 3 through 4, I mentioned this verse earlier, um, a substance of the sign of baptism is given, referring to um, the imagery of us dying and being resurrected with Christ. Would you say that that applies to infants? Um, Romans 6, 3 through 4. Um, Oh, yeah, um, uh, uh, um, so there's the symbolic nature and the real reality of what's going on there. So it's not like everybody jumped into the tomb with Jesus there, right? Sure. So that, that applies to the babies, that applies to, to the Christian believers. Um, it says, do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? It's not like we all... Um, jumped on the cross and were baptized into his death in a physical sense. And so in the same way that that would apply to covenant, the covenant status of, of all of God's people. That's a, that's a, a covenant um, uh, uh, blessing. That's a covenant sign 
you know, everyone's baptized. They're baptized into the death of Christ. Now, I don't, I mean, in the same way, someone who becomes a believer gets baptized, or we think becomes a believer gets baptized, and then they leave the faith. Um, well, was he baptized in, into, the, into his death of Christ? I, he was baptized symbolically into it, but we don't know the heart of what happened there. So, obviously, just like we said earlier, um, baptism is a, a, a sign of what's greater going on in that person's life. And not everyone who's baptized is saved. Right, so if, if, if baptism is a sign of a greater reality, in the cases in which there is no faith, what is baptism pointing to? Well, this, this, this again, this just gets to the sign of, of, of what it means to be in covenant with God. It's just a, it's just a sign to his damnation. So, to, to, to the unbeliever. So, if, um, if I have a child, I have a baby, I baptize them, and they grow up to be un, an unbeliever, well, that sign is just a, a, a sign of damnation to them now. Um, just in the same way, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, and, and someone t- partakes unworthily, well, that, that, the Lord's Supper is just a damnation to them. It's not a blessing to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just what it means to be part of the covenant status and covenant people of God when you come to the Lord's su- Supper, too. Sure. So... You wouldn't say that someone can be a Christian, and you wouldn't say that they can lose their salvation. Uh, 100%. 100%. Right. Once saved, always saved. Is it? That's time. Right. Okay, so I need um, our uh, questions because I'm old and it takes me time to do things. Um, so I can look through them before our. Q&A period, which is after the closing statements. And while they're coming forward, the next section is five-minute rebuttals and clarifications uh, from each individual. And then we'll have some more cross-ex, closing statements, and the Q&As. So I see at least one question down here. Uh, you know, I thought you were going to use your beanie to collect uh, all the uh, questions in. Okay. Gabe, you've got uh, five minutes. Do you want a uh, one-minute marker? Uh, Yeah, please. All right. And don't worry, I won't start the time until you get the microphone (laughs) way up there in the stratosphere. Nice and tall. There we go. All right, go. Um, So I, I think... Um, part of our back and forth you, you see there is that um, I'm trying to ground what a sign is in, into what the scriptures say a sign is. Uh, I'm trying to ground what covenant is into the meaning of, of, the, of the consistent definition of what covenant is from the Old Testament into the New, New Testament. Um, I'm, I'm not arguing that we're saved um, by works. I'm not arguing that a baby... Is, is saved by, you know, circumcision in the Old Testament, saved by baptism in the New Testament. The, the Bible doesn't argue that. Um, the Bible's very clear in the Old Testament that Abraham believed, then was circumcised, then he had all his posterity circumcised, all his household circumcised, and there was no argument that all his children were automatically saved. Uh, and in, in the New Testament, as I mentioned earlier, you have Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, that says you were, you were circumcised, in the death of Christ, you're baptized, baptized in the burial of Christ. And so we see a very clear articulation that 
the circumcision is being equated with baptism as a sign of the new covenant. And so that's why you can, whenever you see this, this covenant language in Scripture, it should immediately, that's why you see Abraham in Galatians chapter 3, you see Abraham in Romans chapter 4, uh, Adam in Romans chapter 5. You see all these examples of the New Testament authors pulling forward uh, old, old covenant examples. And then you see um, Oscar brought up uh, uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. Well, that's quoted in Hebrews. It's quoted in Hebrews. Is, is, you know, new, the Hebrews is basically a book. It's, it's like a, a, um, a New Testament uh, book of Deuteronomy. And so if you kind of read through, through Hebrews, it's, it's kind of articulating what the new covenant is. And, and there's a number, I'm thinking of chapter 8, chapter 10, and so forth. And then, and then um, that's why you get to, you know, Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching at Pentecost, preached a home run sermon, did a great job. All these people are like, well, what do we do now? And Peter, this is Peter's response. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39, he says, Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. That's, that's covenant, that's Deuteronomical covenant language. The promise is to you and to your children. Why would Peter say that? The promise is only to you. You're the one only getting baptized. You're the only one believing today. The promise is only to you. It's because, it's because um, uh, uh, the apostles knew the, the, the covenant language of what it meant to be baptized into Christ and what it meant for that you know, husband and that wife's um, family. God's intention for the salvation of the world has always been generational. The normal way God saves through his church is always generational. Um, of course, we go out and evangelize. Of course, we bring people from outside the church. Absolutely. But the big, biggest way you guys grow is through your kids. Generationally, through your kids. And so that's why the covenant is so important to understand. And so what happens is in all this, and I, um, is there's kind of two paradigms. Obviously, you guys are seeing here. There's the paradigm, so... so Presbyterians, that's me. We, we see when we raise children, when we raise children in our family, we're, we're like, um, a, 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 we're raising a tree to become good fruit. One of course, minute. my kid's not automatically saved. I pray for my kid's salvation. I pray that they'll, they'll grow up and believe in Jesus in their heart. But what I'm doing is I'm believing in the promises of God, knowing that I'm trying, I'm trying to water a tree. I'm trying to water a, 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 a tree to bear good fruit. I don't know what's going on in the kid's heart, but my goal is to water that tree the best I can to bear good fruit. That's, that's the Presbyterian paradigm. The Baptist paradigm is you have kids, and they're like, they're like wheat or tares. But you don't know if they're wheat and tares until they grow up. And so you're hoping the best, what, you know, you're hoping the best that I hope my, my children grow up to be wheat. And so, but when you look at things through covenantally, you're looking at things through the promises of God you're doing, you're, you're faithful, believing in the promise of God, believing that, hey, if, if I'm faithful to God, he will bless me to a thousand generations. And of course, the only true way you can be faithful to God is through Christ working in your life. Time. You, okay, thank you. I was just getting there. You're just starting to preach.
Right. <clears throat> so again, my position, let me move this. <laughs> my position is the sign of baptism rightly desired and properly applied is pointing to the greater reality of salvation for the one who partakes in it. Uh, as I said before, there are times that people are baptized and that's not the case, but we baptize on profession of faith, right? And so the secret things belong to the Lord. We don't know the status of every individual, right? We're called to baptize when a person says that they believe. Um, in the case of a child, they're not able to do that. That is not to say that God can't save children. Obviously, we, we don't believe that. Um, but, but God gives us clarity in the scriptures as to when to administer the sign. That's simply not it. Uh, Gabe mentioned an analogy earlier of marriage as a covenant and a sign given in marriage. And I think it's a helpful one to, to illustrate uh, what I'm saying here. And so if, if a man and a woman are, are courting, if they are, if they are uh, arriving toward the destination of marriage, but not yet married, it would be improper for the man to give the woman the sign of marriage before the covenant is actually made. That's essentially what I'm saying, or, or you think about the marriage bed and the consummation being a covenant, being, being the way that the covenant is cut for marriage, right? We know that it is a sin for a man and a woman to partake in the sign of that covenant prior to it being inaugurated, prior to it being a reality. It's the same that we're saying here. It's the same that I'm saying. To, to, to be presumptuous upon the Lord and to apply a sign prior to, to the requirements that Scripture gives us uh, uh, being a reality is to, is to presume upon God's grace. Now, God is gracious and we believe his promises, and I think we as Baptists can believe and be hopeful about the salvation of our children. We can, we can, we can do that without baptizing our children, without redefining baptism, because that's what it does. The, the truth of the matter is baptism, when applied to infants, redefines what baptism is. It's not just the method that's different. It's, it's the actual practice becomes an entirely different sign for an entirely different reality. Because now the sign is an infant is baptized and it's pointing to the reality that their parents believe in the promises of God. Well, where do we see that in Scripture? Where do we see that as a means by which God is saying baptism is to be administered? We don't. What do we see? Repentance and faith and baptism. That's what we see, right? So, so to do anything other than that is actually to redefine the sign and misapply it and now turn it into something entirely different. And I would go as far as to say is it's, it's rejecting, it's, it's, it's putting aside the commandment of God to place our own understanding and to redefine the sign that he has given to us. When it comes to the salvation of, of, of children, and when it comes to them believing and having faith, those are things that we, we try to constantly pour into our children. Why? Why do we pray with our children as Baptists? Why do we sing songs with them? Why do we bring them to church? Well, one, because we're commanded to by God, and two, because it is the purpose of every human ever created to glorify God. That is your vocation as a, as a, as a person made in God's image. You don't need to be saved in order for that to be the meaning and the purpose of your life. Every atheist in the city ought to be, every Sunday in a church, worshiping God. And so we call our children, whether or not they yet profess faith, to do that exact thing. 
for God is faithful. Right? God has made man in his image to do this thing, and so we call our children to do it. And we pray that in time they come to profess the reality of faith, and then we baptize. Thank you. All right, so we get to go back to cross-examination. Now with all that clarification provided in the past uh, 10 minutes. <laughs> so all the questions will clearly be answered now, and uh, we'll be able to come to a final conclusion, right? Yeah, Okay. 100%. All right, so Gabe, 10 minutes. Okay. Um. I want to reiterate a question I, I brought up in the first round, and I want to start here. Um, because um, I, th I think uh, there's a fundamental misunderstanding with what the meaning of a sign is. Um, so you, um, brought up, you brought up the marriage an analogy again. You said it was sinful for a man to have sex with his, with his you know, girlfriend before, before they got married, um, which we agree with. Um, but the, the problem is that, that that analogy breaks down because um, what what we're talking about is what what the church can see objectively versus what is inwardly going on. Okay, we can't see what is inwardly going on. So if a man marries a woman, she can't inwardly see that he's going to be faithful to her. And but that's but that was that's what the sign is about. Um, so it is um, appropriate for. The, the ring to be put on is appropriate for the baptism to happen in an infant um, and, and believing and bringing those covenant promises of God on that child and believing in the covenant promises of God for that ch child's salvation. Um, uh, so I, I guess this goes back to like, um, it, is, is baptism the, the, is it replacing the sign of circumcision? In the Old Testament, is that what is, is baptism doing that? Um, I would say no. So, how would you understand Colossians chapter two, um, eleven through twelve that I read earlier, where you're circumcised in the death of Christ and buried in baptism? Is Paul is Paul not equating the signs there? Well, as I said earlier, Paul is speaking of a, a circumcision not made by hands, the circumcision of the heart which is regeneration and baptism. But that was always the goal of circumcision. That doesn't, that doesn't negate the sign. It, it was You're the, negating the sign when you do that. Well, it was the goal of circumcision, but it, all, it wasn't always the result of circumcision. It wasn't always, uh, um, it wasn't always the reality. Every time someone was circumcised... Same for baptism. Mean, uh, it's same. not always the reality that sure. someone's saved because they're baptized. Sure, sure. But, but the administration of baptism is taken upon profession. So... It's taken a part. You, you said this earlier. You said, well, we don't know. Essentially, we don't know if a person is saved. We don't know the inward working of the baby. We don't know if the baby has salvation. And so I would say that's why we wait for a profession, because at least we have a means by which we say, OK, we can trust the profession rather than saying, well, we'll just administer the sign and find out later. But but isn't that a man's standard? Isn't like that's a man's standard to assess the nature of that child by saying, hey, you need to say these exact words and then we'll baptize you aren't we creating like some sort of man standard there no i would say that's what scripture says is the prerequisite for baptism mm -hmm. and furthermore i would say that when you baptize an infant and then you watch their life to see whether or not they're christians i would say you're doing the same thing um, 
yeah, so I agree with you that the scripture says that for adults, but what, what I'm saying is, are we ascribing some sort of standard to the covenant children who aren't being baptized in the church, and we're making them have to work up to some sort of standard that the Bible doesn't require out of them? Sure. I, 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 don't, I don't see in the New Testament a dichotomy between what's expected of adults and children regarding um, a profession of faith. Well, that's because you have to sever off the meaning of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant view of, of the relationship between children and God in the Old Covenant. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I sever it, but I would say there's absolutely discontinuity. There, there's, there's a reality uh, of, the, of the New Covenant that is superior to okay. the Old Covenant. So you're saying there's discontinuity in the Old Covenant that children are now no longer allowed in covenant with God. Now, you're, I would saying, say, you're saying that that's the discontinuity? No, not that they're not allowed in, in covenant with God, but that covenant with God is not predicated. I read earlier in John, uh, in John 1, 12 through 14, that by faith, all those who receive him are called children of God, right? That's the prerequisite for covenant membership is that you receive him by faith. So I'm not saying that that's what the scriptures say. Well, the, I mean, but the, the Bible said that in the Old Testament too. It's always by faith. Abraham believed by faith. Faith was always the intention of, of, of the covenant. I think something being the intention and something being the reality are two different things. When the infant was circumcised on the eighth day, was it because of their faith like Abraham? Uh, it was because of Abraham's faith. Sure. Which is Sorry, why, which is why, which why in the New questions. Testament we bap- baptize based off the, the parents' uh, confession of faith. Um, so I, I guess um, what is su- uh, insufficient in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant clearly included child, babies, infants. When I say children, I mean infants. Just, just shorthand. I'm just shorthand. Yeah, yeah. um, when the Old Covenant clearly includes babies in, in the Old Covenant. Um, so that must have been insufficient. If, if, you know, Because we, we do believe, we both agree that the, the um, uh, Old Covenant was insufficient because Christ hadn't, hadn't died and rose again, right? Um, so I guess a part of that insufficiency was that that babies were part of the Old Covenant. That, that, that was part of the insufficiency of the Old Covenant because clearly in the New Covenant, babies aren't allowed to be part of the Covenant anymore. So, so it's the New Covenant's more sufficient. So uh, to repeat my question, are babies part of the insufficiency of the Old Covenant? You, you mean babies' uh, covenant membership? Is that part of the insufficiency? Correct. I, I, would, I would point to the, to the same text in, 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 uh, in John um, 1, 12 through 14. The, the difference is, it, it, actually, it actually points out in that text, um, not by human will, not by blood, not by man, right? We become children of God by faith. I think the insufficiency of the old covenant is that it cannot secure anything for you. It cannot secure salvation for you. Um, so no one was saved in the old covenant? Uh, so no. flesh, flesh that out for me, because I, right. I, I hear that and I think, okay, are you saying no one's saved in the old covenant? No. I, I'm not saying no one's saved in the old covenant. Yeah. I'm saying uh, the reality... Uh, uh, as a promise, the promise of the new covenant is in the old covenant, and those old covenant saints are looking forward to the shedding of Christ's blood. Romans 3 speaks about this as God, you know, and he forbeared their sin in past times, but in this time, he showed himself to be just by the death of Christ on the cross, mm-hmm. right? So that's a reality. But did circumcision always point to that reality? Does everyone that was circumcised, are they partaking in the reality of the old covenant saints? Well, no. we, we don't know if they put partook through salvation, but we know they were part of the covenant, people of God. Yeah, sure. So I agree, I agree with you, the distinction between being part of the covenant people of God and be truly saved. I'm sure. with you there 100%. Right. I, and I'm saying I don't see that reality in the new, the new covenant. 
I don't see a dichotomy between a remnant that is saved and, and one that is not. Um, sorry, again, you, you, sorry to repeat. You don't see the dichotomy between what? In the new covenant of a remnant that is saved and then a portion that is not. That's part of why you asked about the insufficiency of the old covenant. Well, the new covenant is predicated upon the shedding of Christ's blood, not animals. Right? So what's secured is salvation for all of its members. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, that's, that's a, big, that's a huge yeah. difference there, is, yeah. that, is that we, I believe that salvation comes to all those who have covenant mm -hmm. membership. So I agree with you that the administrations change in the old New Covenant. Okay, the administrations are, are um, the, the Westminster are defined by kind of, you know, liturgical and sacrificial system. That was the administration. That was um, a shadow. The shadow sure. grew into the reality, right? So the administration in the Old Testament was just a shadow. And then the administration in the New Testament was the, the reality of, of, of the securing of salvation, Jesus. And that's why we only practice, you know, baptism and and the Lord's Supper. We don't have to do all these sacrifices and everything. How much time left, sure. Dr. White? 141. Okay. Um, so I agree with you that the admi ad administrations change between the Old and New, New Testament. And the Bible is very clear that those administrations change. What the Bible um, never negates is that the definition of who's included in the covenant people of God never changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So you're correct about the administrations, but, but you're incorrect about the definition of who's included. Um, so, um, uh, well, we'll just, we'll just stop there. We're good. Anything else? Okay. All right. You're letting them off easy. You still had a, a minute to go there. <laughs> All right. We have our five minute closing statements from each of our debaters. Uh, is Oscar going to ask me questions? I got two. Oh, I'm sorry. I was, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought, I thought you, you were going to let him go. I, I, I thought we had, uh, we had, we had gone longer than we had. So, all righty. Ten minutes then. All right. Okay. It's okay. Would you say that Christians, whether or not it's known to them, are in sin for rejecting infant baptism? Sorry, did you hear that? Uh, are you, you asked, are Christians in sin if they reject infant baptism? Yeah. Um, no, I would... I would um, Uh, that's a good question. Um, I would I would say that Christians could be in sin if they if they have a knowledge of something that they should do that they don't know about uh, that they don't do. Um, then I would say that's a sin. I would say the modern church largely isn't taught this, and and so I would I would show a little grace there um, uh, because it's it's been. Um, uh, not well taught in our last probably um, century, century and a half of, sure. of church life. Would you say that? Would you say that infant baptism is clearly taught in Scripture? I would say um, covenant um, covenant generational theology is clearly taught in Scripture, and I would say that um, the uh, sign of baptism replacing circumcision very clearly taught. Okay. If there, was, if there was one text that you could point to that best displays, would you would best displays God's command to the church to partake in pedo baptism, what would it be? In, in infant baptism? Yeah. Partake? Uh, well, again, I'd, I'd argue from, from covenant um, and so from the nature be, of the covenant. It would be a text. It would be... Um, it, it would, it, it, well, and, and then I would point to texts like Colossians uh, chapter 2, 11 and 12, 
um, where the, um, you know, why would you equate uh, the sign of circumcision with baptism and then not let, and, and knowing full well that babies were circumcised in the Old Testament and then all of a sudden not letting them be baptized in the New Testament, that just um, doesn't make sense. Gotcha. Um, is there any practice other than pedo baptism that you would consider obligatory for Christians that is not explicitly prescribed by or displayed in Scripture as exemplary? I know you spoke about the women in communion. Would it be anything else that you could point to like that? Where it's not explicitly? Yeah, like you would say it's obligatory for Christians, but it's not given to us didactically, and it's also not shown to us. Well, again, I mean, I, I would, uh, I mean, I think um, the regulative principle in Scripture is not a, not a wooden um, tool. It, I mean, you know, God gives us, in, in, uh, I think it's in Hebrews, where God says, um, you, through wisdom, you exercise your reason. So God totally gives us um, uh, wise people the, re, the, the ability to exercise their reason well. And I don't have a, a, a problem with, um, I'm not a strict regulative principle guy. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I guess I don't know really, really how to answer that. But I would say that um, it's, it's clear uh, how the Bible defines covenant, and it's clear that the New Testament constantly is quoting the Old Covenant, and and so the definition of the old uh, of who's included in the covenant at no point is negated in the New New Testament, and and in the same way it says you know repent and and be baptized. Well, in the same way that was that basically that same message was preached to Abraham, you know believe and be circumcised. I and mean, you have believer circumcision in the Old Testament. That didn't negate his kids being part of the covenant people of God. And you have believers' baptism in the, in the New Testament, and that doesn't change the nature and definition of who's included in the covenant. Sure. Um, from your interpretation, what does it mean for the child to be called holy in 1 Corinthians 7.14? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, so uh, the Greek word there is hagios. It's, it's, basically, it's usually translated saint. Um, obviously, we know um, uh, uh, to be holy is, is to be set apart. And so I think uh, the, the, it, the, the context of that verse is, uh, so Paul, the Corinthians, what, what we're seeing with, with 1 Corinthians, you've seen there's a letter before that where it looked like, or, or there's a bunch of questions that came to Paul, and Paul's responding in 1 Corinthians. Sure. And so Paul's answering the question, it appears to be, they're asking, okay, the un, there's a believing husband and an unbelieving wife, or there's a, a believing wife and an unbelieving husband, what's the status of the kids? That, that, that appears to be what, the, what they're asking um, Paul. And Paul's saying, well, the, the believing spouse, um, is, uh, the, the, their kids are holy. Their kids are set apart. So I believe that it's, it's, it's clear that Paul is saying that there's, there's something unique here that's happening because I'm working in mom's life. That's, that, and I'm going to say that, and, I'm gonna, and, and those kids are set up. Therefore, because what I'm doing in mom's life, those kids are set apart. And so I believe that those kids... Um, could be initiated in baptism. These are new believers. These are, you know, uh, Corinth was a pagan, it wasn't a Jewish place, it was a pagan place. So they're trying to figure out, okay, if mom becomes a Christian, how do we handle the kids? Do we let them become part of the covenant people of God? And, and I, I'm, I'm saying, I would argue that a, absolutely those kids could be baptized and come into the covenant people of God because they're set apart through mom sure. or, through, or through dad, the believing spouse. And would you say the unbelieving spouse is set apart and holy as well? The unbelieving spouse? Yeah. Um, uh, it, well, it, you have to understand the nature of covenant. If uh, the if because covenants are done by representation, um, uh, 
if the husband, uh, this is probably where you're going to get into some serious disagreement with me, if the husband was saved um, and, and therefore the children were set apart, and if the unbelieving wife um, uh, was interested in being baptized, I would have no problem with baptizing her um, because her husband is the head of the family and the whole household could be baptized because of that. So um, if it was a, a believing wife and not the husband, he couldn't be baptized, but if it's a believing husband. She's not the head of the family. Gotcha. Um, uh, but there would be a bunch of caveats around that. Like I would want to disciple her. I would want to walk through. I'd want to, and I would believe God would be working. If she wanted to be baptized, I'd be glad God's working in her life already. Um, so I, I think there's some initial working of the Holy Spirit happening there, but um, I would want to um, hold her hand through that process and not force it upon her. Sure. Okay. Um, I, I kind of asked this earlier, but I, wanna, I wanted to ask again because I, I don't know how clear the answer was. In the case of infants being baptized, if, 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 if salvation by grace through faith is not being mediated to them, what is he mediating? So there's a blessing in being part of Apologia Church. Even if a non-Christian came here, sure. man, what a, what a blessing. And even came here for a year and he never became a Christian. It's just being around the people of God is a blessing. And, that's, and I think you apply that to the covenant. And for a child to grow up into the covenant people of God, that child is under the far greater blessing and far greater cursing if that child leaves the faith. That child's in a far greater blessing than some child in third world country Africa who's not growing up in the covenant people of God. There's, there's blessing to be had being around God's people. And so that's part, of, that's part of the beauty of the covenant is that what we're acknowledging is we're acknowledging that God's blessing these, this people. God has covenanted with us and our, our children get to grow up to be part of that covenant blessing. In fact, that's why God says, you know, children are a heritage to the Lord and that if you obey me, I'll bless you to a thousand generations. So God assumes the covenant status of children. Um, it, it, it's just assumed in that language. Sure. So w- when it comes to covenant, what is the, what would you say is the requirement for covenant membership? Well, if you're talking for an unbeliever, uh, it's different for uh, um, an unbeliever. I have no problem. Repent and be baptized. He has no part of the church. He's walking into the church. Um, he has to repent and be baptized. So, in, the, in the same way, um, uh, you know, if, if a, um, a Gentile in the Old uh, Testament came into the came into covenant of God, he'd have to believe first and, and be circumcised. So there's two, different, there's two different requirements, one for the unbeliever and one for the, the one who is a part of a believing family? Um, it's, 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 um, different, um, order of service. Sure. Okay. Uh, the, the unbeliever coming from outside has to repent. He's not set apart like the baby is. Mm-hmm. The baby's already set apart. Doesn't mean he's saved, but there's already a, a holiness to that child. That is not a holiness that the world gets to partake of. That child's already set apart as the covenant people of God in a way that unbelievers not now. And so that child that baby um, gets to be baptized because of mom and dad's faith uh, and, and that, 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 that covenant blessing, that covenant reality is being recognized in the generational baptism of their child. And so the, the believer, the, un- the unbelievers, it, yeah, repent and be baptized all day. 
So, so last thing, we got a couple seconds left. In terms of, of Jude and what Jude says is, you know, th this is a, a faith, contend for the faith that's once and for all handed down to you. When we get first in the, in the, in the New Covenant, when we get, or the New Testament, we get these scriptures that tells us how to administer baptism, tells us about covenant. You say you reject that? No, I, I, I say, um, uh, again, Jude is using covenantal language that's uh, being passed down from generation to generation. Okay. Um, so I'd say that's just consistent um, with the, the whole goal of the Old um, and New Covenant was for the salvation of, of, of the believer. You have circumcision, circumcise your hearts in Deuteronomy, <laughs> you know, um, and, and you have that same language, that circumcision of heart in New Testament also. Gotcha. All right. Okay. Uh, we've come to our five-minute uh, closing statements, and we'll start with uh, Gabe when he gets his iPad to do whatever it's supposed to be doing. Yes, and uh, then afterwards, we will have our Q&A. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. White, for moderating this. I'm sure there's a number of points where you had to bite your lip. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. And again, thank you, Oscar. Appreciate everything that you've done. It's been fun to go to spar with you. Um, it's beautiful. The covenant blessings of God are beautiful. It, they are, God promised that we had the first gospel preached to us, the Proto-Euangelion in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God would send a seed that would crush the, uh, the head of the serpent. And that that was a, a covenantal promise there. That was in the context of God covenanting with Adam and Eve in a fallen world. And that that seed would come and crush uh, the serpent's head. And then you have Noah in chapter you know, 6 through 9. You have all the elements. In fact, that's the first time where we hear the word covenant spoken by God. The actual word covenant. And so we very, see a little more clear articulation of what is God, God is doing in his covenant promises. And then you have very clear um, uh, uh, promises that God gave Abraham before he had Isaac, years before he had Isaac. And in fact, God had to remind Abraham multiple times, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you, and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And, and God came to Abraham in chapter 12, and then in chapter 15, and then and finally in chapter 17. You know, so God had to remind Abraham that I'm going to bless you before Isaac was even born, and of course Sarah laughs because of God's wild promise in their life. And then you have the promise, the, the, the covenant that God made with Isaac, the covenant that God made with Jacob, the covenant that God made with Joshua, the covenant that God made with King David. And then you have the fulfillment of all those beautiful and wonderful covenant promises in Jesus Christ. And you have um, uh, thousands of years of, of this covenant articulation in the Old Testament. And then you have the, pro the prophets calling Israel back from from their rebellion against God, calling them, saying, you're, you're breaking covenant with God. Stop breaking covenant with God. And then, of course, I have the beautiful text that Oscar brought up in Jeremiah chapter 31, where um, God is promising a new covenant. A new covenant that, that finally the Holy Spirit will be working in your lives to where that word will be written on your heart. That was always the goal. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 10. 
Believe in God. God God promises to write the word on your heart in Deuteronomy chapter 10. That new covenant promise was always the goal of the old covenant. And that's why I want to submit to you that, that how we think about the covenant, it's not one old covenant and one new covenant. It's a revelation of the covenant God made with man from the fall of Adam and Eve. And that that one covenant was a greater and greater revelation of what was God going to do. And then finally, that, that one covenant became that, that new covenant, which was the fulfillment of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and for the sins of this world. And so, why would we want to sever the covenant blessings of what that covenant means, not only to us, but to our children? And, and to our children's children. Why would we want to all of a sudden take... Um, um, uh, change the definition of who's included in the new in the new covenant people of god well i I think i think the bible's very clear that um circumcision the sign of the old covenant and baptism replaces that sign and so as you and then you see in the new covenant you know paul in the new testament paul's constantly referencing abraham's covenant abraham's covenant would he reference abraham's covenant but all of a sudden his you know um new covenant kids aren't allowed to be part of this stream of generational blessing? One minute. And so I, really, really what I want to submit to you um, today is that no matter how you slice it, all baptisms are infant baptisms. No matter how you slice it, a new believer coming in, that's an infant baptism. Okay? A baby who's born into the family of God, that's an infant baptism. All baptisms our infant baptisms. Thanks for your time. Say again, thank you, Gabe, for, for being here and for partaking in this. It's, it's been fun. Um, Microphone. Short. I forgot I'm short. Sorry. Um, so this debate was about is pedo-baptism, is infant baptism biblical? And, and I told you guys at the beginning to, to pay very close attention to the way that we argued, the way that we argued from our point, who argued from the clear teaching of Scripture and who did not. And I'll, I'll leave it up to you to determine that. Um, but, but, but what I want to leave you with is this. It is of utmost importance that we hold dear to Scripture and what it teaches us and to not veer to the left or to the right uh, regarding what it prescribes for us. Uh, it is the way by which God throughout every generation is reforming his church and mending his church and healing his church and growing his church. If we start to drift on any of these issues doctrinally, um, the ramifications thereof will will be great in due time. Um, This is a practice that's been in the church, I think they go back to the third century. Um, But again, history is not a hermeneutic for us. We don't look at history as the means by which we determined what is uh, proper in light of scripture. We look to scripture. And, and, and this is the, the plain reality of this debate. There is no text that teaches this 
mode or means of baptism. There is no text that defines baptism in the way that Gabe defines it. You have to go to the Old Testament to, to, to be the basis and, and the foundation of understanding this in order to apply it in the way that he does. And I say, God has given us the New Testament for that purpose. And again, it's not to detach it from the Old Testament. It's the New Testament is the greater revelation. It is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. And therefore, in order for us to be Christians who are striving for godliness in every aspect of our life, well, well why would we not go to the words that God gave us to define the sign and to rightly apply it? The Word of God is, is what sharpens us. And it, it, it's what keeps us in a position of being blameless before God as we seek to be faithful to it. I, I think this debate, this debate is, is very clear. While it's, it's, it's an emotional argument to say some of these things that I think my brother has said, and I think he's even admitted some of it, the clear teaching of Scripture says what it says. It does not mean children cannot be in covenant with God. It means covenant membership is not automatic. That in order to be in covenant with God, you must have union with Christ by faith. For if it is not by faith, there is no union. And so when I ask him about 1 Corinthians 7, about the child in that situation, I ask specifically to get to the next point, which was, well, what is the status of the unbelieving spouse? And again, if there is an admission or, or a, a, a willingness to baptize someone who's not only not an infant, right, but someone who is an, an unbeliever, Scripture calls an unbeliever, if we apply what we mean covenantally by holy to that situation, we've just uprooted so much of what the New Testament speaks to. The holiness of the saints is not a set apart in, in simply in the marriage, but it's set apart by God. In covenant. That couldn't have been what, what that situation was speaking about. And so again, I say it's, it's extremely important for us to be consistent in what we believe and what we teach from Scripture, because if not, you get ramifications such as that, such as an unbeliever being baptized, someone who not only is not an infant but does not profess faith at all. If we start with covenant and not start with what Scripture has given us as a prerequisite for baptism, then we have situations like that. And I say, again, that is not at all appropriate for what we see um, in Scripture and any of the examples or any of the means by which, by which baptism is defined for us. You never have that, ever. And so let us stick to Scripture. Let us hold dear to it and live in light of what God has revealed to us clearly. Thank you. Okay, looking at the clock, uh, I'm sure it's my fault. We're running a little bit behind. So I have eight questions for Gabe, three questions for Oscar. So you win the number Surprise. of questions. Uh, sure. Popularity contest sure. there, Gabe. Uh, and I have uh, five uh, questions that were not addressed to anyone in particular, so I imagine it would be uh, proper to give it to both. So here's how we get this done uh, on time. Um, I will address the ones that are to Gabe and to Oscar to them. We'll have one minute. Okay, if you can get done faster than that and go, I just got done talking about that, fine. Um, and then when we do the ones to both of you, we'll do 30 seconds for each of you, 
and we'll just rip through them as quick as we can. Right. So, let's do it. Uh, Gabe, you've got the bigger pile. So, let's start with this one. Uh, how do you hold a baptized, non-professing individual to the standards of church discipline given in, given in Scripture? A baptized, non-professing individual. Um, I, I'm a, if this person grew up in a family and was baptized and didn't profess, um, and he leaves the faith, that's what basically de facto excommunication. Um, so he would at some point be excommunicated. Okay. Uh, but I'm, I'm assuming that he was baptized in a family and grew up. So, Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's what it was referring yeah, to. Okay. Uh, I'll do two for you and one for you, and that way we'll sort of get things out if that's all right. Okay. Uh, Gabe, are you equating the baptism in Moses in the sea and the cloud, a temporal salvation from physical slavery, with the baptism into Christ? Uh, no. That's a, that's a shadow of what was to come, just like Israel and the Red Sea was a shadow of what was to come. But what I am um, arguing is that even in that shadow, infants were baptized. Um, uh, and so the, the, the Scriptures doesn't have a problem with infant baptism, even in the shadow of that, of that symbol. All right. Oscar, are you more concerned about babies taking part in communion or baptism? Hmm. <clears throat> Both. Both. Okay, that was, boy, we're going we're gonna to get done real well. Uh, this, you guys are, are working with me well here. This is good. We're cruising. Uh, we're cruising. Uh, Gabe, since the Judaizers claimed to, to be Christians, is it your position that they would circumcise and baptize their infants at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there was um, probably a period of time where that was happening. I think the Jews were required to baptize um, their covenant children, and so I'm baptize sure... Baptize or circumcise? Both. Well, I, mean, they, they, I think they were required to baptize, but they were no longer required to circumcise anymore. But I, I, I bet because of tradition they did it. Okay. Uh, in reference to Colossians 2, 11 through 14, how can baptism be for the unregenerate? It's, it's, well, it depends. It, baptism for the, uh, you, if you're an unbeliever and you grow up, if you grow up as a pagan and you confess the name of Jesus, then you get baptized. Um, this is how the sign worked in the Old Testament. If you were a, a Gentile and you, you became a Christian, you, you professed your faith in Jesus or God, God the Father, um, you would be circumcised and come into the covenant people of God. So it, it, no distinction, no difference there. Uh, I think we did too. So, uh, Oscar, it's a long question. If faith always needs an object, and we know that the Old Testament people of God had genuine faith, then what was the object of faith of the Old Testament church? If it was Christ in types and shadows, then how are they not partaking of the same substance as us? I would say the Old Testament saints are partaking in the same substance of us. It's just that all of them didn't. They're in types and shadows, but not all of them believed in the substance of those types and shadows. This is why in, in Psalm 1, God is telling the people, I hate your solemn assemblies. I'm full of blood. I'm full of the blood of goats and rams because the things that God has given them to point to the reality of Christ, they did without faith. And so those who did them with faith, I would say they are partaking of the same reality that we are. 
Gabe, in light of your covenantal categories, would not different promises between covenants, Hebrews 8.6, mean that those different promises make for entirely different and distinct covenants? In other words, different promises, different covenants. Um, well, the, I, I, I think some of the administrations were different from covenant to covenant. I mean, Noah had the sign of the rainbow. Um, you know, Abraham had the sign of circumcision. So there was some different administration through those covenants. Um, but the promise was always the same. The promise is always that um, a Savior was going to come to save God's people. So I don't... Um, read that one more time so I can finish my well, thought. Because it says Hebrews, it specifically points to Hebrews 8.6. Hebrews 8.6. Different promises between covenants, Hebrews 8.6, mean that those different promises make for entirely different and distinct covenants. Um, was established in better promises. Yeah, I, I think that's just, so he's also the mediator of a better covenant, talking about Jesus, which was established on better promises. And I think that's just the, the, the shadows. The old covenant promises were um, shadows of the of the promise of Jesus to come, and so I think um, Jesus was the greater mediator. I don't. Uh, he's the he's the he's the better mediator. I don't I don't see how that. Um, I'm not quite sure what okay. the what they're getting at um, because I, I agree with that. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, Gabe, you say infants are part of the people of God, given that parents are saved. What would you say the infant's status is if only one parent is saved? Or parents become saved after, during infancy. Hmm. Slice and dice. Um, uh, I would say, for the one believer side of things, uh, the infant is is I wouldn't say set, saved. I would say set apart as God's people. That's what First um, Corinthians chapter seven is arguing for: is that if there's one believer in a marriage, then the children are set apart. And, and so I would say that that, that baby is part of the covenant people of God. And in the same way, if mom and dad are not Christians, they conceive a child, um, that child is now set apart. Um, so I think 1 Corinthians 7 applies to both those examples. <laughs> I feel like asking the question, Gabe, did you ever listen to Dr. White's sermons on 1 Corinthians 7? But we will skip over that. <laughs> Oscar. Yeah. Uh, how is baptism better than circumcision if baptism has more restrictive preconditions to be given, yet baptism is a symbol with no power to join you to the covenant, whereas circumcision did have that power? Because circumcision joined you to a covenant that didn't promise you anything. Ultimately, it didn't promise you anything. What, what I'm saying, as far as the sign being greater... Um, we can use the same analogy of marriage, right? You have a, a wedding ring, and your wedding ring is more valuable than something else in your house because of, what it, because of what it's pointing to. The value is derived from what it's pointing to. And so baptism, why I said is objectively a greater sign, is because when rightly desired and properly applied, it points to regeneration. It points to adoption. It points to being co-heirs with Christ. That doesn't mean that that's always the case, but when it is properly applied and rightly desired, then that's the case. Uh, for, for circumcision, um, that could be the case or that could not be the case. Um, and so that's, it, it, the, the significance, the greater significance comes down to uh, the greater covenant. Okay, I've got two more for Gabe and then the rest are for both of you. So we'll go to a 30-second mode on that okay. one. 
Uh, Gabe, is there anyone today who is part of the covenant who will not be saved as some as there were some circumcised as some circumcised Jews were? I think is what it says. Yeah, um, I mean John Piper's son. <laughs> you know, he he was baptized. He's not saved. Um, there's a lot of um, believers, unbelievers out there who were baptized and not saved. Okay, but so it's, so. Is there anyone okay who is part of the covenant who will not be saved? Okay, so you're saying yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and finally, just go to the Presbyterian Church and look at pastors' kids. Ooh. Mm. Ooh. Okay. Uh, doesn't Romans four thirteen through fourteen clearly state in na- in naming Abraham a reference to the old covenant? that simply being heirs of the law, that the promise is worthless if not baptized by professing faith. Is that, that to me? Could you read it one more time? That, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't Romans 4, 13-14 clearly state, in naming Abraham, a reference to the Old Covenant, that simply being heirs of the law, that the promise is worthless if not baptized by professing faith? I'm not sure what baptized there means, but maybe you can look at Romans 4, 13. Yeah, I, that's one of the texts I quoted um, earlier. And if, um, uh, let me just recount it real quick and see if I, I do my best to try to answer that question. So Romans 4, um, uh, verse 11, you've got to back up, says, and he received the sign of circumcision and still the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. So Abraham had faith while still uncircumcised that he might be the father of all. That's the point those who, of those who, who believe. And, and though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are the, of circumcision, but also to those who walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while circum, uncircumcised. And then it's verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to the seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So I, I have no problem with having believer circumcision. Um, Abraham had faith and was circumcised and, and then had a covenant. Um, his whole household became in covenant with God after that. God did that to be able to signify that the unbelieving pagan Gentiles out there who had no connection, no covenant connection to God, they would one day come into a saving relationship and a saving con- covenant connection with God. Okay. All right, now these did not have anyone addressed, so I'm assuming they're to both, uh, and we need to be very, very brief. So uh, this one has actually two related questions on the same sheet. Were unbelievers included in the Old Covenant? Is the New Covenant only made up of true believers? I think this probably is where the division is, so... uh, You give Oscar Oscar first. Yes, Oscar. Were uh, were unbelievers included in the Old Covenant? Yes. And is the new covenant only made up of true believers? Yes. Yeah. Yes to both. Um, well, clearly, there's remnant. Uh, there's speak. Uh, uh, there, there's God's word speaking of remnant all throughout the Old Testament. And then when Paul in Romans 11, he's referencing back that reality, and he says, "Look, God has been faithful to His people because His people have always been a remnant." The old covenant people, there's always been a remnant of them, and God has been faithful to them, even, even in the midst of, of, of judgment that God has rendered to the rest of the people who are under that covenant, right? Christ came for, for the blessing and curses. He came to, to administer blessings and curses to uh, that covenant people. So yes, 
both were under the old covenant. As far as the new covenant goes, you see no talk of a remnant whatsoever. You see no, no scriptures that, that are giving you a dichotomy between those who are truly in Christ and those who are, um, th those who are in Christ but then separated um, um, by some, some, some type of reality. Like I said, you, you can have an individual who has the pretense of being in union with Christ, right? They have the pretense, um, but, but actual union um, was not there. Uh, Gabe? This is where um, a lot of the disagreement uh, lands on the new side, on new covenant side of this thing. First, unbelievers in the new covenant, in the old covenant. Yes, there were examples of unbelievers. Uh, Aaron's uh, kids were burned by, by fire um, uh, at the temple for doing all sorts of sins. They were in covenant people of God. Eli's kids um, were in covenant people of God, and they, um, uh, I think, were unbelievers. Um, so I think there's examples in the old covenant where there were unbelievers who were part of the covenant people of God and who were unbelievers. In the New Covenant, uh, do we have unbelievers? Uh, again, if, if what I'm arguing for is that baptism is an objective sign that people are in covenant with God. Uh, baptism is an objective reality that this person is coming in covenant with God. We don't know the status of his heart condition. We believe, he's, we believe his words. We believe he's saying that he's saved. I believe in Jesus. We believe that, and we believe him at face value, but we don't know if he's genuinely saved. And so I think you have examples of like Paul you know, excommunicating leaders in the church and telling them, uh, you know, uh, parting ways with them. And I think those, those people were, unsa were unsaved and they were, they were baptized. They were part of the covenant people of God. If we get the new covenant wrong, will God be angry like he was at Moses in Exodus 4? Whether we baptize when we shouldn't or if we withhold baptism when we should. Uh, what I would say is... Uh, I started off this, my opening by, by recognizing this as a secondary issue. While I think it's a serious issue, um, I, I'd say it's, it's secondary. It's, it's, we agree on the essentials of the faith. Um, we would call each other brothers in Christ. Um, will God be um, angry at our sins, per se, but our, our sins are, are, are covered in Christ. So, um, yeah, that's how I answer that. Babe? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, um, wait, uh, ask me the question one more time real quick. If we get the new covenant wrong, will God be angry like he was at Moses yeah, in Exodus yeah, yeah. 4, whether we baptize when we shouldn't or if we withhold baptism when we should? The new covenant is far much weightier. Um, uh, it's, it's very clear that, that in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, that the covenant promises of God to, to the people were much weightier. And it was a greater promise. It was a greater reality. So I think, I think those who've seen Christ, those who, who've had the message preached to them, carry a much greater burden of judgment on them than those in the Old Testament who, who didn't get to hear that message preached. So hands down, the New Covenant is much, uh, the, the, the blessings and the cursings in the New Covenant are much greater. Okay, real quick, two more. Uh, grace is defined as unmerited favor. Is there any merit required on our part or our parents' part in order to enter into the covenant of grace? Um, every covenant has all been by grace. The covenant that God made with Adam and Eve before they sinned. That was a covenant of grace. That was the very, the very fact that God created Adam and Eve, the very fact that he gave them the garden, the very fact that he gave them life. That's all grace. And then the, after the fall, that covenant that God made with Adam and Eve was all grace. The covenant that God made with Abraham was all grace. Every covenant has always been by grace. Um, so that's my 30 seconds. I would say every covenant has been gracious, but not all have been the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace being unconditional in nature. Uh, the finished work of Christ. I mean, I mean, the, the, the covenant is made with God, by God, and, and he accomplishes it all. And so that is what I would understand as the, the covenant of grace. Uh, while the other covenants did have conditions, 
um, in them that if they were broken, then the covenant like we have with Israel in Jeremiah 3 was severed. Okay, and um, this is the last one I've got here. Were baby girls included within the Old Testament covenant since they were not circumcised? Uh, yeah, um, through, the, through the headship of their dad. I would agree with that. Okay. All right. There you go, folks. Let's uh, thank our debaters for their contributions. Let's, um, I, I do have one last question uh, for Gabe. Um, who is the better copy editor reader, me or Toby? <laughs> Hands down, you, doctor. You, doctor. <laughs> we're, we were in full agreement on the show on that one, too. <laughs> I, I, hope, I, hope, I hope we have that on, on the film. So we, uh, we will pray that uh, Gabe will be reunited yes, with his uh, luggage please. when he gets back to his hotel. Uh, that would be a, a wonderful blessing to have. Uh, in trying to get to, to sleep. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, for all of you for coming this evening, I'm sure it will only begin more and more conversations. Uh, I will mention uh, that on the 24th, Eric? 24th, is that the date? 24th of uh, February up in Salt Lake City, uh, Eric Yeager, my son-in-law there, will be uh, debating uh, Zach Lautenschlager. And it's very similar, but what's the thesis exactly again? Who is included in the covenant of grace? Uh, and that'll be taking place up in uh, Salt Lake City. So uh, you may want to be looking forward to that, uh, that conversation taking place. And I was watching Eric uh, feverishly taking notes over there. So, uh, uh, so there you go. So let's, uh, let's thank the Lord for our time together and, uh, and then be dismissed. Father, we do thank you that we still have the freedoms in this land to be able to discuss uh, things of your truth, to be able to travel and meet together and have fellowship around these things. We ask that you would help us in our understanding. Uh, Lord, we desire unity in your body, and the only way for that to happen is if we continue to come to your word. So we, ask, we thank you that iron does sharpen iron, and we would ask that that is uh, continued in our conversation this evening. Uh, we ask that you give blessings uh, as we travel home this evening, and especially, Father, we do pray that you would give uh, Gabe blessings as he travels home tomorrow, uh, reunite him with his uh, luggage. Uh, Lord, we know that kind of thing can be annoying. It's not uh, something of eternal value, but it is annoying, so we would ask that you would uh, bring, uh, bring him back together with his luggage, and Lord, continue to bless his ministry as he travels and works as well. We thank you for this time and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.